0: Well, good morning, Rivertown Community Church. So good to have all of you at all of our campuses this morning. And uh, if you're the first time you're here today, this is just one of my favorite days of the year um, because we just think you're going to experience a treat today because you're about to see why there's nothing like the local church when the local church is absolutely working right. In fact, in just a few minutes, you're going to see how incredibly loving and generous and compassionate and kind the people are that are sitting around you and how much they really are for our communities. So uh, before we get there, what I want to do is I just want to remind all of us why we do what we do as a church and why you continually hear us say that we are for our communities. And to help us understand or remind us of that, it goes all the way back about 2,000 years ago to an idea that really is at the heart of Christianity and really an idea that is at the core of our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. And here's the idea. You don't want to miss this. And that is this. God became one of us and lived among us. Now, that's very important because Jesus was the model for our lives, and so Jesus, he set the pattern and the behavior for all of us for what we should do as followers of Jesus Christ. So God became one of us, and he lived among us, and we're going to talk about how he fleshed that out, and therefore, that becomes the pattern for us to flesh that out. Now, there are four independent historical accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, You might understand them or know them as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are historical accounts of Jesus' life. Now, the first three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written less than about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. But John, he was the last one to write his account. And he wrote it as an old man who was, had experienced a life of sacrifice and a life of suffering in fact John had watched all of his friends become martyrs he was the only one left of the twelve disciples at this point in time in fact John he is now on the Isle of Patmos for those of you that are Tuesday night revelation study of all our campuses you understood that from last um, week's conversation is he has been isolated to the Isle of Patmos for really teaching the gospel and um, John has time to think. And John's sitting there and thinking, man, I began following Jesus as a young teenager. And I really believed that he was the Messiah, that he truly was the one and then there reached this point in John's life after he'd been following Jesus for about three years where Jesus was crucified and John didn't believe anymore for there's about three days where he's like, okay, this didn't work out like we thought it was. And then he went with Peter to the empty tomb and he didn't know what to believe at that point in time. But then after seeing Jesus after the resurrection later with his own eyes and hearing Jesus with his own ears and touching Jesus with his own hands, John fully believed from that point on that Jesus truly was the Messiah, that he was the way, he was the truth, and he was the life, and he never wavered from that point on. He was a fully devoted follower of Jesus from that day on. Matter of fact, he talked so much about Jesus and the resurrection that the Roman Empire, they got sick of it, but they couldn't shut him up. And finally, as we said, the Emperor Domitian, he ordered John to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where John could basically talk all he wanted to, but there was nobody to listen. And it's there on the Isle of Patmos that John, who is probably about 90 years of age, he realizes that he doesn't have many years left. So he slows down long enough to write an account of his experience with Jesus. And as it reflects on how best to describe who he became convinced that Jesus was, he begins writing. At the beginning of his account of Jesus' life. In John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 and also verse 14. Here's what he says. In the beginning. Now, beginning here is referring to the beginning of time. It's not the beginning of John's story, but it's the beginning of time. And here's what John writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when you first read that, you could go, well, that sounds a little cryptic. Well, what does he mean when he says the word was with God and the word was God? Well, you can kind of think about it this way. A word is simply a thought expressed. A word takes something that is unseen and makes it seen. It takes something that's intangible, some intangible thought, and makes it this tangible expression. See, I can't read your thoughts. I can't understand what I can't see, but when you put words to your thoughts, then I can see, I can see the pictures that you paint with your thoughts, uh, from your thoughts with your words. So John uses this expression of word because for most of history, God has been unseen and God has been intangible. In fact, for all of human history, basically God has been unseen and intangible. People weren't really clear on who God was. Because they could not really see him for themselves. But, God, but John says, hey, God decided to clear up all that confusion about who God was. And this is how he did it. Notice verse 14 of, first, of John chapter 1. He says, the word referring to God became flesh. And then we know that flesh is Jesus. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is basically saying, as he starts writing his account of Jesus and who he came to consider Jesus to be, he's saying, as I look back on my time with Jesus, I am full. I am fully convinced that Jesus was more than just a friend. Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Jesus was more than just a moral man. Jesus was more than just a great leader. No, Jesus was God in human flesh. Literally, he's saying that Jesus came to take the guesswork out of who God is. In fact, you could say it this way. Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. See, every religion of that day, they claimed to know how to explain God better than anyone else. And if you really stop and think about it, every religion of our day, they claimed to know how to explain God better than anyone else. But Jesus didn't do that. See, religion wasn't on his radar. Instead, Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. Literally, he said it this way. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, if you want to know what God would do, then watch me. If you want to know what God would say, then listen to me. Jesus went on to say, I and the Father are one and the same. Now, here's the thing. When John and all the other followers in the very first century, they realized this idea that Jesus and the Father are one, that Jesus didn't just claim to be the best explanation of God, Or Jesus didn't just claim to have the best explanation of God, but Jesus claimed to be the best explanation of God. When they began to realize this was true after the resurrection, it literally blew their mind that God was here in human flesh. But let me tell you what else blew their minds. Jesus didn't just demonstrate what God was like. He demonstrated who God liked. See, Jesus taught us, That God is love, that God loves everybody, and everybody matters to God. Think about that. This is what Jesus came also to declare. He says, God is love, God loves everybody, and everybody matters to God. And Jesus demonstrated and authenticated that by his life. Now, here's the thing. When I read these three statements here, most of you, you hear that and you just kind of yawn. You just kind of yawn. And here's why. Because you've heard that before. You, you, you kind of believe these ideas, and you've heard them, many of you, since you were a child. And so the bottom line is, when you hear that God is love, and God loves everybody, and everybody matters to God, you go, okay. But here's the thing you have to understand. Not in the first century when the first century people heard that God is love and God loves everybody and everybody matters to God. I mean, these were brand new ideas that Jesus is introducing in that time. See, Jewish people didn't believe that God loved everybody. They believed that God loved them. And most of the Jewish people only believed that the healthy and the wealthy mattered to God. In their mindset, And from their view, if you were sick, if you were poor, if you were disabled, if you were disadvantaged, you didn't really matter to God because God was angry at you or God was disappointed in you. And so he wasn't blessing you. And so in their mind was, if you didn't matter to God, then you didn't matter to them. So really when you boil it down, only like wealthy, prosperous Jewish men really in their mindset mattered to God. In fact, you've heard this statement said before, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's from Jewish scripture. But guess how the Jewish people define love your neighbors as yourself? They defined it as someone like them. But here's what happened. When Jesus showed up and made this declaration that God is love, God loves everybody, everybody matters to God, he showed up and he redefined what neighbor meant. He redefined neighbor as everybody in every nation for every generation. That's what our neighbor is, he said. It is everybody in every generation in every nation. And it literally shocked the Jewish people that Jesus would widen the circle to include the idea that everybody matters to God. Now, here's the thing. That wasn't just in the Jewish culture. It wasn't any better in the Greek and the Roman culture. No, in fact, it was absolutely worse. See, nobody practicing Greek or Roman religion believed these ideas. See, they presented their gods as gods who weren't loving. Their gods were demanding. Their gods were angry. They didn't care for people. So people weren't seen as valuable enough to be even cared for. And that is why slavery was so rampant in that culture. In fact, you may not realize this, but there was more slaves in the Roman Empire than there were Roman citizens. So in the Roman Empire, slavery wasn't seen as a social injustice to address in their minds. No, it was this, this assumption that it was just acceptable behavior. But do you know what happens when you have a slave culture? Do you know what happens there? Everybody gets devalued because everybody is just one bad string of luck away from becoming a slave. I mean, think about it. You might be powerful and on top today, but if another country invades and conquers you, then you could be a slave tomorrow. Or you might be doing really well today, but if your husband dies, you as a woman could be a slave tomorrow. Or if you were injured today, you could become a slave tomorrow. Or if you lost your job and you went into debt, you could become a slave tomorrow. See, in a slave culture, Everyone is somebody's potential property. So you're only as valuable as the economy says that you are. So you can imagine in cultures like this in the first century, compassion, it was completely disregarded because they believed that people got what they deserved. They, they believed that poor people got what they deserved. They believed that sick people got what they deserved. They believed that rich people got what they deserved. They what they deserved. And then along comes Jesus And he says, no, that's not how God values people. And that's not how God believes at all. In fact, Jesus comes along and says, hey, in God's eyes, everybody matters to God. And everybody has equal value. And everybody deserves to be treated with dignity because they are made in the image of God. So Jesus told us, we're not just to love people who can love us back. Jesus went so far as to say, no, we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to those that will never be able to do good back to us. In fact, Jesus came along and taught us that compassion is a strength, it's not a weakness. He taught us that gentleness is showing power under control and meekness is not weakness. Jesus went on to teach that the sick and the poor, they are not being punished by God. God is not angry at them. Instead, God is for them. They matter to God. He, he even went so far as to say that those far from God or those close to God don't matter more to God than those far from God. In fact, he told a story one time. You, you might have heard about it. The parable of the lost sheep. He said that God is actually focused on those who are lost relationally, those who are far from him. And God chases them down, not because he's angry at them. He chases sinners down, not to pay them back, but to win them back. In fact, he taught us that being holy was so different than what the religious people of that day taught of being holy. That holy doesn't mean being separate and isolated and superior. No, he says, dirty is actually the new holy And some of you go, what do you mean by dirty is actually the new holy? No, he he says that the holiest people have the dirtiest hands because they walk into the messes with people and they serve those people and they get their hands dirty. And then every day of his life, he lived that out and he showed us what that looked like. Think about it. Jesus lived this out when when he asked a Samaritan woman for a drink when no other Jewish man would even dare speak to her. But not only did he speak to her, but he asked her for a drink out of the same vessel that she was drinking out of. He he, he lived it out when he defended the dignity of a woman caught in adultery, when he looked at her and he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He he lived it out when a Roman centurion came to him for help. And you got to think about who a Roman centurion was. A Roman centurion was absolutely the enemy of the Jewish people that he would have been over a cohort of Roman soldiers who would have been oppressing and keeping the Jewish people enslaved and Jesus not only listened to him but he helped him see Jesus lived all of this out when he went to Zacchaeus house when he went to Matthew's house both who were tax collectors and had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. He, he lived this out every time he reached out and touched a leper, every time he healed a sick person or gave sight to the blind. See, through his teaching and through his actions, Jesus gave value to everybody, the sick and the poor. He gave dignity to women and placed them at equal value with men. He elevated the status of people and he redefined neighbor to include everyone from every nation for every generation. And see, after the resurrection, John is sitting here writing, and it's like he's saying, we got it. We first century followers of Jesus, we got it and we followed it and we never let it go. In fact, basically you could say this, no strings attached compassion and generosity. It became the hallmark of first century church. See, here's the reality. There were a lot of people in the first century, Jewish people, Roman people. They, they thought what they believed about God, these Christ followers, what they believed about God coming in human flesh and, and dying on a Roman cross and then coming back to life. They're thinking that's the craziest thing in the world. But they could not ignore how much they lived and how much they loved with no strings attached compassion and generosity as that became the hallmark of the first century church. In fact, one of the most amazing things of the early church and all these followers of Jesus, they, they believed so deeply in what Jesus said, that they took Jesus, what he said about eternal life serious to the point that they truly believed that the best part of our life happens in the next life. So much so that they did not fear death. And history tells us that whenever plagues and disease would ravage a town, everybody else would flee except for the Christians. And these Christians, they would stay, and they would care for the sick and the dying, and many times at the cost of their own lives. And history tells us that these Christians, what else they did, is they treated women with such dignity and respect that the women knew that when they were with Christians, they were safe. They had nothing to fear. They knew that these Christians would provide and protect for them, especially for single women and, and widow women. In fact, in the first century, there was another thing that really showed the compassion of Christ followers. Is um, In the first century, abandoning babies was legal and a common practice. So whenever a, a parent had a child that they didn't want, which was usually either a girl or a child that was born with a deformity, they would just take that child to the edge of the woods or the bank of a river, and they would literally abandon it. Or in some cases, the parents would even kill the baby themselves. In fact, the first century Roman philosopher and politician Seneca said this. He says, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. Now, think about that. That was not considered scandalous. It was not considered immoral. It was just accepted in that culture. In fact, Rodney Stark, he writes about this in The Triumph of Christianity. He says these words, The exposure, really the abandoning or killing of unwanted infants, was widespread in the Roman Empire. And girls were far more likely than boars to be exposed. Keep in mind that legally and by custom, the decision to expose an infant rested entirely with a follower. But here's the thing, do you know what Christians who understood Jesus' command to love one another did whenever they saw this happening? They stepped up and they did something. They, they literally began to show up every night to where these parents would drop these babies off and they would rescue these babies and they would take these babies home and they would raise them in their home in spite of the fact they often barely had enough because they were Christians and they were oppressed by the Roman Empire to even take care and care of only families. They they did it because that's what love required of them. Now, they didn't do this because this was some admirable behavior in their culture. It was not. In fact, Rodney Stark goes on to describe this. He says, in contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. See, that's how people in that culture viewed helping other people who could not help you. He goes on and he says this. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues. That a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity... Christians may not please God unless they love one another was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. And then he goes on. But the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. And over the years, the first century church, they changed their culture with a no strings attached compassion and generosity. And here's the thing. When you stop and look at the culture of the first century, there's a lot of familiarity with what's going on in our culture today. And so they changed their culture with no strings attached compassion and generosity. And listen, this is still the role and this is still the responsibility of those of us who follow Jesus Christ in the 21st century. See, the church's role is to remind everyone that everybody matters, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is. You are valuable and you are precious in God's sight, and you deserve to be treated with equal dignity. And it's our role to show and and show that love, the kind of love that shows that value and dignity for people who can't ever or never will do anything in return for us. And so what that means for us as a church is this is while we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. Because, see, that's what love requires of us as followers of Jesus Christ. So for several years now, we, we've been trying to become people in our communities who are known for these kind of things, this love and this compassion and this generosity that has no strings attached to it because we really believe that's what is required of us as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what love requires of us. See, this is something that we try to practice individually and collectively all year long, but we tend to drift away from that. And that's why whenever we get to this time of the year, we refocus on this specifically. Because, see, we feel like we need to remind ourselves that God loves everybody and everybody matters to God. And so what we do to remind ourselves and to practice this is we do that by giving our time and by giving our money in big ways. So what we decided years ago is that we were going to do this with our time and with our money to show people that we love so that they can understand the love of God. And the way we decided to do that is we're not going to compete with nonprofit organizations that are already doing the great work in our community. So the way we say it is, we're not here to pioneer everything, but we are here to partner with people who are pioneers. And so we wanna partner with the best of the best of organizations that are in our community and we ask them how we can help and so we wanna help them go further faster. So that's why we wanna partner. So this year, we had a group of people who at each one of our campus, they went and invested dozens of hours meeting with nonprofits in our communities to say, how can we make the biggest impact? And they asked these questions, like, what would make a big difference to you? Or what would help you make a big difference? And and we didn't promise them anything. We just listened to their dreams. We listened to their wish list. And and some of them included financial support. and, And some of them, they need us to invest our time and help serve them. So today, as we told you last week, today is give week. Next week is serve week. And the week after that is love week. So if you're new to RCC, what we do whenever we do Give Week, which is today, whenever we give what we call our four offering each year, every penny that you give to that, it goes to back to those nonprofits in our community that we partner with. And so this year and, and even some other um, needs that are in our communities. And so this year... Um, With your generosity, we're going to help organizations that serve children and families. We're, We're going to come alongside some of the best nonprofits in our communities. And we're going to provide funds to help them increase their capacity to respond to need during this time. Because there is a lot of need. We're going to come along and help nonprofits who focus on stabilizing housing in our communities. And we're gonna come alongside of nonprofits that support families and individuals that are facing hunger issues in our communities. We're gonna help some nonprofits that support foster families and foster children. And we're also gonna come alongside some nonprofits that help children who have experienced sexual abuse. Now, here's the best part about all of this. You'll see every part of this. In a few weeks, we're going to show you a video of some of our people delivering checks and surprising these organizations and helping them so they can go further faster. So, here's what we're asking from you. We, we never have a goal, a number goal for this offering because you always have showed up in a really big way. The only goal that we have for this offering is our only goal is 100% participation, 100% participation. Now, here's why this matters so much. As we reminded you last week, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the church. In fact, we believe this so much that some years ago, I wrote a statement to remind us that every one of us are the church. And especially in this season, we need to remind us of that because we hear people from time to time, they'll be talking about, well, I wish the church would do this, or I wish the church would do that. And oftentimes I'll go, well, are you a follower of Jesus? And they'll go, yeah. And I'm like, well, then you are the church, so you should do that. In fact, it's why I wrote this statement, I am the church. So let's put it up here again. I'm going to read through it. Then I'm going to ask you to read through it again. I am the church. What I am the church is, when I serve, the church serves. When I reach out, the church reaches out. When I give, the church gives. And when I love, the church loves. And then when I don't, the church doesn't. Because I am the church. See, here, here's the thing that we discovered years ago as we studied Scripture. That the church is not a building. The, the church is not the staff. The church is a group of people who are followers of Jesus. And our church will never be more than what you are in all of these areas when it comes to serving, reaching out, giving, and loving. So if you're not reaching out, our church is not going to reach out. If you're not loving, our church is not going to love. If you're not giving, then... Our church is not going to be generous and if you're not serving then our church is not gonna be serving so it's it's the whole statement that church people make going I wish our church would that needs to be a statement we look in the mirror and going I wish you would because you are the church right so everybody in all of our campuses let's read this together as a reminder I am the church what I am the church is when I serve the church serves when I reach out the church reaches out when I give the church gives when I love the church loves and everybody take a deep breath and say this next part like you mean it and when I don't the church doesn't I am the church so what this means is our, our church will only be as generous and loving as we are so what we're asking is everybody Christ follower, And even if you're with us today and you're not a Christ follower, you don't really consider yourself a church person, you can participate in this as well. So what we're saying today is we want 100% of you to participate and give. Now, some of you, you can only give a dollar. That's great. That's very generous. Some of you, you say, I can only give 10. That's great. That's generous. Whatever your level of generosity. Some of you, you can give $100. Some of you can give 500, 1,000, 10,000. Whatever the Holy Spirit lays on you on your heart to say, listen, as part of the church, we want to generously give back. So we want you to give as generously as you can together. What will happen is we will make a huge difference because when we all do what we can do and we all are generous, when we bring it together, it absolutely is amazing what God shows up and does. So here's how this works. The easiest way to do this is just to pull out your phone. All of our churches right now, just pull out your phone, open up the RCC app, and you can give to the fund. You want to give to the fund. Okay? So this is specifically for the ForeFund. For or you can go to our rivertown.cc website. And you can do the same on our website. Give to the fund there. Or you can go to the kiosk in our lobbies. And you can see a QR code. You can take your camera up there and, and scan that code. And it will take you right to the link. Now, for those of you that still carry cash or checks, uh, you can just put those in the giving envelopes. And you can write for fund on that as well. Drop those in the giving boxes on your way out of the... Out of the um, in the out of the auditorium now there are also some tables in all of our lobbies where if you use a debit card or credit card and by the way don't use a credit card unless you pay off your credit card at the end of every month okay because we do not want you going in debt to do this right Um, just stop there and there will be some people that can help you with that It's just a way we want to make it available so that everybody, whether you you do electronic giving or whether you do cash or checks, everybody can be a part of this. Now, if you're with us today at one of our churches and you're like, why in the world do you guys do this? I'll tell you. Because, see, we really believe what we're saying. We believe that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. And we believe that our love for God is best demonstrated and authenticated, not because we sit in rows and look at back of heads and listen to sermons and sing songs. No, our love for God is best best demonstrated and authenticated through our love for others. So we believe this was what Jesus' love requires of us as a church. So if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to have like, no strings attached, compassion and generosity. Now, next week, we're going to talk about opportunities to serve some of these nonprofits. But today, what we want to do is we want to challenge you to show the people in our communities that our church is a movement of people who have been changed by the resurrection and the message of Jesus. And we are living out the command of Jesus by showing no strings attached, compassion, love, and generosity, that we are for them. And why are we for them? Because God is for them, and we want them to understand that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and and you're going to get out a few minutes early today, and that's on purpose because we want you to have time to sit right where you're at, to pause and think and say, God, what is my part as part of the church? Because I am the church. What is my part? What do I need to give? And then you can give online at your seat or you can go out in the lobby or you can sit in your car. However God leads you to give uh, to this four offering. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible opportunity that every one of us have right now to authenticate and demonstrate that we love you by loving the people that you love. And that's everyone. And God, I just pray that you will help us as a body of Christ, as a church family, to never yawn again when we hear the thing that God is love. That everybody matters to God. That God loves everyone. God, may that stir something in our soul and remind us of who we follow. Not only that you love us, but you love everybody. And therefore, for our lives, to demonstrate the kind of love that you have for us. And it requires, it requires us to follow you in our behavior, our attitudes, and our actions, so that we are truly showing no strings attached, compassion, generosity, and love to everyone we encounter every day of every week for all of our lives. God, I thank you for your incredible love that allows us to live with no shame and no guilt and live in the freedom that you died for us to experience so that we can experience a personal relationship and and your incredible love. But I pray that you help us to authenticate that and demonstrate that through the way that we give, the way we serve, and the way we love. Not just for this season of these three weeks, but God, as we continue to do this throughout the year, because we... Each individually, we are the church. And so when we love, when we serve, when we give, when we reach out, our church does that. So help us to be your body in this world as Jesus was your body in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you everyone for being with us today. You just let the Holy Spirit lead you how he wants you to give. We'll see you next Sunday.